Welcome to Beyond. We got some amazing guests here today, and it's a, it's a really poignant topic, topic of our times, talking about testing for COVID-19. And we know that President Trump really touts the number of tests we've run as a country as compared to other countries, but we know it's woefully inadequate at this juncture. The U.S. government is working with private companies to make available millions of coronavirus tests with quick results within a few months, according to National Institutes of Health Director Francis Collins. He said this to uh, Congress on Thursday. Quote, I must tell you, Senators, this is a stretch goal that goes beyond what most experts think will be possible, he said. Quote, I have encountered some stunned expressions when describing these goals in this timetable to knowledgeable individuals. The scientific and logistical challenges are daunting. Some public health experts have said widespread COVID-19 testing will be necessary to safely loosen restrictions brought on by the pandemic. In its three-phase plan for opening up America, the White House Task Force recommended states test at least 2% of their populations before allowing some non-essential businesses to resume. Um, I'd like to uh, introduce the audience to John Powers and John Spinoza, who are working with an organization, Rule Out COVID-19, on a study that's being coordinated by Murrieta Genomics to radically increase the number of COVID-19 tests being run. Gentlemen, welcome. Hey, Ben. Good afternoon. Yeah, it's great to have you guys on. So as I discussed on the top, you know, the White House is really pushing for testing. I know that it's a badge of honor for President Trump. But the question that really remains is, why has it been so difficult to scale up and bring wider testing, uh, wider spread testing to the masses? John, you want to take that first and I'll... Sure. Well, there's two, there's two aspects to the test. Uh, that You want to make sure that the, that the test is reproducible and safe and that the conclusions are safe for the for the patients and such and so uh, in a typical environment we have a regulatory environment and the fda that tries to assure this um, and then manufacturers tend to incorporate the complexity of the test into a, a unit of work that that uh, you know the the trade of it becomes uh, logical i I paid this um, company to make a test that's incorporated by this plastic device with all the aliquots, and, and it subsumes all the aspects of it. The problem that happens now is that we're in a, a pandemic where the need for something specialized far outstripped our ability to get to it. And the way you address it is you have to go back to, to primary ways that a test is first developed and such and and with rule out that's kind of where we got to how do we, how can we do it safely and how can we scale it using equipment and tools that we have that exist in the research so john we'll get to that because i think it's important yeah. we'll, we'll develop the rule out but right now we're okay. in a rule in sort of paradigm so let's right. talk about the current testing so the audience can get an appreciation for what's going on for current testing what are the what are the big delays being driven by i mean what delays the results that we're trying to get so building on what John was talking yeah. about with delays of getting tested, when you look at it, like you said, they're doing rule in right now. So they're looking at the, um, the copies of the virus. They're looking at, they look at any regular test in a normal environment. And what that does is it gets people working when they're with a clean environment, which a lot of people look at as more of an FDA restriction and what they can do. And you're seeing all sorts of emergency use applications. You're seeing all sorts of trying to go around and what we're saying is, hey, with existing equipment, just changing the methodology and changing the way you look at this as trying to decide who has it 
you can do a much faster test and you can do the PCR, which is the most consistent and, and recommended. You run what we call an offline test and we'll get in more detail what the difference is. But we know you can, you can easily do, you know, 20 fold what they're currently doing on every machine out there, every PCR, qPCR machine. Well, that's an order of magnitude difference. But I also read where on um, some of the reports that COVID-19 infections are not being detected in as many as 30% of tested asymptomatic cases, i.e. that mean that many uh, non uh, no infection in, uh, inclusions are incorrect. Why are the results so far or so off uh, with the current testing? It's it, the problem is you don't have a consistent test across the board. And when you look at all the numbers reported in the news, it's hard to tell what they're actually, you know, what's their denominator? What are they basing this against percentage wise? And that's why when we looked at it, and John can go on this from the pathologist standpoint, we looked at qPCR because we know it's reliable. And we know you actually get a, you know, you get a copy, you get a count of the copies of the virus within that sample. So if you've got a good sample, you know, and, and what you need to do is you have to set a threshold, you have to have at least 10 copies of the virus. And it can be thousands, but you want to make sure there's a threshold. John, you want to add to that? So there's a, additional parameters is that there's not only the, the assay itself, but there's how you acquire the sample for the assay. And so um, we, we don't, we're, we're working towards a best practice of how you acquire those samples and nasal pharyngeal and oral pharyngeal swabs and what swab and how, you know, it's, it's um, daunting for a, for a patient to have this large probe put into their nostril six or seven centimeters. They feel like it's going into their brain. And um, that can be daunting. So if that's not done well, everything downstream of it can be variable. I think there's um, approaches that are improving that. But that pre-analytical variable, um, the way you compensate for that is actually do more frequent testing. And we haven't done that. And, and there's lots of tests that when they work, they can be very specific, but, but getting the right sample um, requires effort. And, and one of the ways you compensate for that is, is I've, if I think you have it and I got a negative result, instead of just using that result, I retest. Right. If I thought you have a heart attack and, my, and your enzymes weren't high enough, I'm gonna retest retest to see if that's that's still the case or not so 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 it seems also that these tests can be impacted by user error so if i'm swabbing yes. uh, the nose and i'm i'm not doing the right technique i'm probably going to get bad or back bad data is that is that an oversimplification or is it real no i think that's yeah. i think that's real we do it the best we can and you get you get better at it with experience but some of that data that came out was fairly early on when we're learning it and and someone is you know we're all worried about and, and doing this am i going to get infected i have these i have these new um personal protective equipment around me that you typically weren't using i have a long list of people behind me that are stacked up and i think that that makes us a, a little bit less consistent in how we do it and it's no fault of the people or whatnot it's just inherent to the process. And so you have to, you have to work on ways of overcoming that. All there, are there alternate approaches? Are there best practices? You know, uh, New Haven uh, 
Yale came up and, and showed that uh, self that self swabbing actually is as effective or more effective than having uh, a healthcare worker do it. And part of that is is probably that people are more comfortable with their level and having it witnessed and such. So I think I think it's not necessarily a reflection that the test is bad. I think it's a reflection of the complexity of the whole process and getting there. So Yeah, and it seems to me when you have a pandemic, you're going to be caught flat footed. There's no way you compare yep. prepare for the scale enormity of the challenge and what we're what we're experiencing. But John Powers, it would seem that there's an advantage between urban centers versus rural areas, right? In urban centers, we put a lot more money and resources to nip in the bud some of those hot spots, but certainly rural areas aren't, aren't benign to it. They're certainly dealing with it. Um, and, and so how do you, when you think about the current test and what's facing um, healthcare decisions in the rural area, um, how do we bring COVID testing to the rural area um, where they don't really have a lot of help? They don't have the, the resources, the infrastructure to support such testing. Well, it's, it's interesting because when you look at it, you look at the numbers and everybody says, well, it's, you're safer in the rural area because you've got more distancing. And it, it's the same virus. It just doesn't show up as quickly because it doesn't spread as fast. And that's why when we looked at this, we didn't look at this and say, hey, we need a new method. We said, let's look at what's out there. Let's see, you know, the first thing it did is they sequenced the virus. So we know that sequencing is correct. But we know exactly what we're looking for. So we looked at the qPCR machine and we said, how do we get the most out of these machines? And the beauty is there's thousands of these already out in, in research areas, hospitals, universities. So with what we're proposing, and if you're in a rural area, you definitely have a qPCR within, you know, probably within 100 miles. And we know that with the recommended techniques we're, you know, we're, we put out there, you can do 7,500 7, a day on one machine. And you can expand that once you get experience because you cut out the redundancy, which are the replicates. But that's how they cover the rural area very quickly and very easily. You can right. go up there and, and there's machines that exist. So you have clearly a widely deployed robust screening capability that is highly reliable and identified negative cases is certainly needed right now. Higher volume testing would help to identify still um, asymptomatic individuals who might be already infected for follow-up and testing and perhaps earlier isolation. We know that the current testing paradigm is inadequate to meet the population needs. So let's focus on your solution, which is rule out COVID-19 testing. And how does this differ from conventional testing, uh, so-called, um, I'm, I'm sorry, ruled in, right? Yeah, so-called ruled yeah. in. Well, um, I'll take that, John, if you don't mind. The, the, the rule in and the uh, original tests are want to make sure that you have the, have the disease. And so the original the original test as it was outlined had three areas of the virus that they were looking at. And to rule it in, they wanted all three areas of that positive. And then they did it looking at a, at a, uh, at a viral load type sequence that they could, they could see the presence of the virus load. What you do is if you're ruling out what you're willing to accept is that the, I'm willing to accept a small number of false positives so that my negative result has a lot of power. Because again, this is trying to look at people who are pre, uh, asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic and such. So you wanna, it's at population levels. So you wanna be very sensitive that a negative result is as negative, is as true negative as you can get because you can always follow up with the positives. 
And so what our test does is just say, well, it, if we have all three of those areas positive, that's great. But even one of them positive, treat that as a positive. And doing that simple change means that you can put the PCR reaction, you can put all three areas in a single well, in a single reaction well, instead of four different wells, a control and, and three for the virus. And you can put those all in a, a single, you can put the viral ones all in a single well. So all of a sudden your capacity has, has doubled because you don't have to use up as many reaction chambers. And the, the, the risk that you have is that you might have someone be false positive, but that's okay because we have, we know what to do with the false positive is we can do a confirmatory test or we can isolate them and retest them and do things. And the false negative can go on. So. Right. And I, I noticed in reading some of the uh, information that you guys are taking a two-phase approach to building test capacity. What does this exactly look like? The, um, the first phase would be um, consolidating uh, the test into wells like uh, that. The second phase could be where you can actually combine the control using a, a different detector molecule so that the whole thing can be done in a single well and it can be done with a single, uh, a single pipetting step. And each of those increases um, the, the capacity of the instrument. There's actually kind of a subtle third thing that instead of doing real-time PCR, you do endpoint PCR. So you can have a, the instrument that reads the reactions can be separate from the, the actual PCR um, uh, cycling. And so, because you're just wanting to see if I have a signal or not. And so because of that, you can maximize the, the use of the um, detector instrument and you can have multiple of these going at a time. And all of those changes increase the, the throughput of what you can do. And Ben, when John. you look at that second step, what John's talking about is you can take a large number of samples and run eight thermocyclers at the same time because typically when you run the PCR test, you're running it, it's an hour test. So you run, if you're running single samples per well, you know, the CDC and the WHO, they're getting between 12 and 16 samples an hour. So if we're doing it at a single well, we're gonna get worst case, we're gonna get 48 samples per hour. But if we do it offline on, on a thermocycler and then combine them on the PCR machine to do just the end read, which will give us the bioluminescence to show, hey, they're above this threshold, then we can do 384 an hour. Mm. And that's using replicates as well. So that's doing copies of it at the same time. Right. So if you get, when you've done this for months and you know it's kind of like redundancy in electronics, if you're like, hey, at some point you don't need the redundancy because you've got such good reliability, mm -hmm. you can skip that. And that's when you can look at literally in an eight hour day, getting 15,000 samples run in a single day on a single machine. And that's, yeah. 1500. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry about that. 1500. So, so let's talk about um, how would this test be practically implemented? So if I'm, you're talking to the president of the United States or his task force, um, in other words, what is the facility staffing and oversight that is required to implement your approach to testing? What does that look like? 
it, uh, it looks like the instruments are relatively small and they're portable, so they can be placed in a site. And, and the, the question is, what kind of site do you want? You could have everything from, a, from what looks like a pop-up site with a, with a temporary structure to an, an area of a building that's unused. Because, because of how the samples are acquired, you, you inactivate the virus very quickly. And so you can you can do most of it without having a hood. And so um, what the rule out site has is it has a, a a sample outline of the the size of the area that you need and what kind of outlets you have uh, and kind of the layout. And then the instrumentation themselves. That's where it becomes a a uh, an incentive for industry and researchers to contribute their instrumentation to this. There's lots of idled instruments right now from the work from, because of work from home and the shutdown and and uh, and such. So, so, so John, for the audience's edification, describe what is the instrument that's sitting by idling that's readily available. There's there's three mainly. There's a small test desktop centrifuge that's used that can be used to. Um, remove debris or least eliminated. There's um, pipetters that aren't being used, which are small handheld things. A thermocycler is about the footprint of a, of a, it's a big you know, iPod. A, yeah, yeah, it's a, a big shoebox. Yeah, and then, and then the, uh, the QPCR instrument is a, uh, it's a mini fridge. About it's a, it's, a, it's a two square foot mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. And it weighs yeah. about 75 pounds. It's about the same weight and size as the mini fridge. So, so those are so portable that you can actually take them to a site and hook them up and get them recalibrated quite quickly. And right now they're sitting around doing nothing. So if you looked at every QPCR instrument, I right now live in Carpinteria, which has UC Santa Barbara and a couple of research institutes. And I would say conservatively, there's there's probably 10 QC, QPCR instruments in in this area that are just gathering dust right now. Right. Let me let me back up and take a step back. And one of the key questions I failed to ask was, what does it look like to collect a sample from a patient? What, describe that process that you're running through this instrumentation. Well, you have a you have a um, a glorified Q-tip. It doesn't have cotton on it, but it has a kind of a roughened edge on it with a about a seven or eight centimeter long uh, plastic extension on it. And you put that into the up into the nose to get the very top back part of your sinus. Alternatively, there's some that you open your mouth and you get the very back part of your throat. And then that the tip that you use to kind of um, roughen roughen the it's called the mucosa the lining of that area and the sample of the mucosa then goes into a fluid and the fluid lyses or uh, disrupts all the cells there and releases the the DNA and RNA and and keeps those from being degraded and then um, after after 10 to 15 minutes of that, this, the swab comes out and you have this fluid and that fluid is what you sample. And then that goes on 
and becomes a basis of the reactions. And so when a patient the, comes up, do they need to have the rule out uh, approach? Sure. So when a patient comes up, do they They're need to be wearing PPEs or uh, when they present to these labs, they could just come as they are. Um, they get the swab done and will the results come back while they're there or do they have to wait a couple days? No, they, they'd wait. I mean, they could get it that day if it runs. And the way we looked at this, I'll let John, you know, go out after I explain it. But yeah. just the way John described it, we, we envisioned that you'd have an accessioning area where patients could come in, especially if you set up a temporary facility, much like a bank teller. They take the sample, they pass it through the glass, you get, and it's the labs right there connected because you don't need a lot of space for this lab to set up. You put the swab into the into the tube, you cut it off, you license the uh, swab so you can get the sample out, and you can then get those on the machine. Hopefully you're doing this real time, and the accessioning actually could wind up taking up more time than the actual setup for the test. Mm. But then you run the test, the test itself takes anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half, depending on your setup and prep. And then you guys will get your results and verify your results. So you could easily get the results same day, but it's um, it's a nice. You could literally have a nice assembly line and be doing this on site where the patients are coming in. You, John, you want to add to that? Yeah, I think that's it. You you can the workflow is very quickly. This is the advantage of having um, the relatively small equipment that can be done at the site if. Um, and because we, we differentiate the, the amplification of the signal from the reading of the signal, you could also have the, the instrument that does the reading be on a mobile, mobile site and you could be doing the reactions while you know, a, a sprinter van or a blood bank van or something of that size goes between sites, does all the readings and then goes to the next one. So it's right. really geared up for distributed things. And the patients themselves, because of that, the patients themselves can just do a witness, um, a witness sampling. You could have it like in this teller kiosk, you could have, here's how you do it. They could be in their car, if you want them in the car, or in a small booth and do it, put it in the sample. The sample goes across the plexiglass they move on, you can clean the plexiglass. And we think that you can, you can speed line this. Remember the complexity is we're, we're, we're doing a very focused test for a very focused result. And that having, uh, getting to remove all those optional things that a full service lab would have to do makes it very quick and you emphasize that. Right, so, so what you're describing is really intriguing. So what's the staffing requirement per location and the oversight required to make it, you know, operate efficiently? Well, the way we looked at it initially is we looked at doing points of service, to, which is why we're working with local hospitals for the demo, because we extend their CLIA license, which is the oversight piece of it. Mm -hmm. And then we can, we set it up and we set the lab up. There's one basically what you call a CLS, so a clinical lab specialist to run the machines. They can, they can process everything on a single machine fairly easily by themselves. And you typically want to have someone else doing the sessioning so that that CLS isn't occupied. And that's really just collecting the samples. And they can either put them into the, into the tubes or the CLS can put them in the tubes. But it's, it's a very simple process. There's, there's some automation you can add to it, but there's really not a lot of need of, you know, to do automation up front. 
But when you get to the mobile aspect, the John's talking about, that's where automation would help a lot because you're moving the, right. the machine from site to site. Right. But the oversight really becomes you expand the, the CLIA license from that center. And John, being the pathologist, can get more right. of the piece of it. Yeah, and then the pathologist, as a licensed uh, uh, medical person, can oversee oversee the general approach to it. We have um, we have it built out that the you still have licensed people, and then you have subspecialists, and so it we think it can be done with as um, few as three people. It might be a little bit more than that if you want to increase the throughput of people being sampled. But um, so, what could three people? Having, um, what would be the throughput of three people in a day? If I had, you know, five hundred patients, could three people handle those five hundred patients? Or what's the scale we're yeah, talking about? We think, we think, uh, we think three people could easily do five hundred samples in a in an eight to ten hour day, and and. We think that's actually fairly conservative and it would be possible to actually go beyond that fairly quickly. So it's and cool so about this could, concept. Yeah, you got portable yeah. labs that could be set up at like Edwards Life Sciences or a lot of main companies or yep. nursing homes. They're they're portable, they're flexible. Yep. And you could bring the testing to these sites pretty rapidly. Yes. That's that's the whole thing. You could set it up. You could validate the the process itself can be validated by the mothership lab. You could set it up, show that the instrumentation instrumentation is working, and then go on. So you could actually follow hotspots instead of having to transport things. You bring the testing to this to the system where it's close, and you have turnaround times that are meaningful for the care of patients and especially in this public health setting where you want to be able to track and trace if you can't get results back for 48 to 72 hours you you're constantly behind the eight ball and i think getting things in sub 24 hour segments means that you if you ask someone to isolate you're you're not asking them to isolate for three days or four days while you wait and you can you can get an answer, make a decision, and go forward. And that's that's really the beauty of this is it's it's the most cost efficient too because these machines are out there, they're sitting idle, the people are out there, so the labs have a trained personnel. Your skill level on the on the lab is to be able to pipette and then know what you know what combinations you're using in terms of the kits. So it's it's very easy to implement and it's very cost effective because you're not going out and buying new equipment or doing training on something different. John, let's talk about that. That's a good point. It leads me to the next question. Uh, what is the funding required to operate this testing? Because nothing's cost neutral. Even though there's equipment there, there's going to be, um, you know, uh, payroll, there's going to be some costs associated with having a person there running these tests. So what kind of funding do you think would be necessary if, a, if a, a company wants to bring in this testing or a hospital? What would that cost those entities or those organizations to set up and run? Well, I'm actually in the process of filling out a grant request. And it's interesting because it's not I'm having it through, I'm doing it through a charity because it's not a one company that provides it or is providing equipment. But if you look at a PCR device, the QPCR, the one that we've got from Thermo Fisher, is about 90 grand list price for the, that piece. When you look at the thermocyclers, they're about three grand list price. And we're assuming most of that exists. So we're not looking at that as a cost that you gotta go acquire. But if you were to get it new, that's what you pay. 
pipettes, you look at, you know, the collection tubes are scarce right now, but, you know, those are going to be the same regardless, so I won't put those in the equation. The pipettes are two cents, basically two cents for a, a vial, not the pipette, yeah, the tip. And then you look at a full, you know, a um, one FTE, whether that's a CLS or whether it's an existing lab tech, you look at a full-time person, roughly about loaded cost of 100 and 120K a year. But once again, we're, we think there's going to be a temporary need for staffing. And then most of these labs will have someone that can do this already, either working in their pathology lab or someone that will come that's out of work where the machines are idle. Like you mentioned, um, Edwards or Thermo Fisher, one of the large life science companies, mm -hmm. there's plenty of people out there that can do this on a temporary basis because the training for a existing lab person would be very quick. So I think right. you're total all in per site, if you bought everything new, is still under 200K. Oh, not bad. Hey, so Johnson knows a question for yeah. you. Yeah. Um, sort of touched on this, but what is the accuracy or sensitivity specificity of your proposed test for rule out? Well, we're, we're doing those tests now, but this is essentially the, the test is the essence of the, of the test that, that was set up in South Korea and came from the WHO. And that, that the sensitivity is down to, oh, I have to look at the, uh, the most recent, down to under 10 copies in, in the sample. Right. Which is quite small. And the specificity, um, the, most, of the, most of the false negatives are actually in the sample acquisition. The specificity is quite high in the uh, 98%. Hmm. range or higher so no and i just looked at the data on saturday it is it's 10 percent. it's it's 10 it's 10 copies so, 10 copies yeah. yeah and when you look and, at some of the other tests pen they got to be there's literally tests that require ten thousand copies or or thousand copies you know large numbers copies of the virus to detect it but like I, john mentioned i looked at the test results on saturday and we're detecting it at 10 copies do you guys have a publication you're working on or is there published data on this approach? We, well, there, there's the original published data, which is uh, our, our white paper on the site has, has a reference to the South Korean one that's um, done. Like I said, we're not, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. What we're trying to say is what's out there that works. How do you scale it? And the scaling isn't, isn't coming up with a new way to do it per se. This the scaling is what's the workflow that makes sense when you're distributing the tests and how do we how do we distribute that in the environment that we have in the US and how do we get sites that you know to sites that need it. And that's where the knitting that's really where rule out has um, I think um, enabled a lot of work because a lot of those small things that prevent you from starting the you know i have to write policies and procedures i have to know what the it system looks like i have to know how to validate it what are my what are my considerations on instrumentation that i need that's all on the that's all on the website and such so yeah. um so you already have a clearly yeah. defined roadmap you're not trying to yeah, so we have yeah no exactly yeah. You know, what John says, the SOPs and all the, um, all the information you need to actually set this up exists today. 
and we don't have published data on our, we don't have our published data, but we have our data and we'll share our data with anyone. That there's really not a need to go through the publishing of it. We can share it and it's real straightforward. And we can show you that, you know, uh, 10 copies, we can detect the 10 copies and we can show you results. Well, specificity in 98% with 10 copies is very impressive. So if this thing blows up across the country, um, are the supplies needed to run these tests readily available? That means the swabs for the nose. Are they um, already, you know, in other words, we had a big run on ventilators, right? So we had to create and crank out a bunch of ventilators. So right. if this thing takes off and blows up, um, do we have the necessary supplies to run these tests? The answer is, well, the, the, the swabs to obtain samples is, is um, how would I put it? That's, that's kind of a pain point for everyone. And that manufacturing is, is ramping up. So I think that becomes, in a way, orthogonal to this approach because we can use what's ever out there. Exactly. The other thing is that this approach isn't tied to a specific swab. Some of the FDA approved ones that are all packaged are tied to a specific swab and you can't switch those out. So this is, this is more generic. The it's rest of the material, <laughs> right, it's, we're swab agnostic and all of this, the, the material that you need to run it are all bulk reagents. And so they come into play because you're hand pipetting. So you don't need specialized plastics. You don't need specialized um, uh, reagents. And, and, that's, and that's one of the beauties. That's why I think, uh, I'll just throw it out there, but besides helping with COVID, this is actually a really robust approach that should be um, incorporated into, um, a pandemic response, I think. The idea that you can break out a set of instruments and quickly scale something is yeah, gonna, it's not gonna go away. Right? This should be in the tube right. block because there will be more pandemics. Right. There will be some yeah. other, you know, earth-threatening And like And like John said, this, this, this is all set up vendor agnostic. Right. So there's a number of qPCR machines, there's a number of thermocyclers, you know, there's ones that we like that we use specifically. But for extraction, we, we're not worried about having the reagent for that because if we can get it in bulk. Same thing with the reagents. Like John mentioned, the swabs become really kind of the, the gating factor, but we can use a, a number of different swabs that are out there and we know that everyone's ramping that. So we really expect that to be the way to go. You know, right. and just to circumvent, there's been a lot of news about, oh, they can do a saliva test. Of all the saliva tests they've talked about, there's been one that they actually got results on and that needed the um, the copies of the virus it needs for that to work were really high, so we don't think that's a viable solution right now. Sure. So if we get this thing blown up, I can tell you firsthand that a lot of doctors' offices right now are working purely on a telemedicine basis with their with their patients. And so if this thing blows up and you've got 500 at one site getting processed every day, it really leads to the next question of IT infrastructure, um, patient registration, database management. Um, how you get them that data connected to their healthcare provider. So what is involved in getting this set up? I'll answer it first and then John can cover because he has a lot more experience in, in these discussions. But one of the main reasons we're looking at moving the machines directly to the medical centers is they already have the session in place because it'll be mostly their own patients coming to the centers. It's when you start going on a, on a much broader scale that you're testing out a field that's not connected directly to the hospital system. 
that becomes more the IT issue. And there's a group that's working with us right now. Um, it's called Tilda that focuses specifically on IT solutions. So they're addressing this directly. Uh, this, that's really a big part of what they're doing with the clinical trials. So their expertise, when we looked at who could really kind of embrace this, since clinical trials work outside of the EMR and then, you know, and, and they tend to be very tightly run, we thought they'd be a perfect group. And they've got great ideas for running this. John, you want to add anything? No, that's true. There's, there's, um, uh, Tilda is providing the infrastructure in a cloud-based system. And uh, as John Powers said, the, the idea is how do you, um, how do you connect those? There's some robust standards that are out there. And because this is a single approach with a single system, we've, we've standardized all the variables because we're not, we're, we're not trying to um, make something unique as much as we're trying to make something ubiquitous. So there's a, a way of health systems that's part of the infrastructure um, that's come out um, from our, some of our uh, national programs and such that's quite robust. Uh, Tilda's been using that and will have a server set up so that it can, it can report those back and it will report those back in the same way. And so you have what, what it'll look like from the health system is I collected a sample that went to an instrument and what came back is a result of that sample from the instrument. And again, yeah. as, as, as we go over their requests and things um, slow down, the ability to dismantle this infrastructure is also an advantage. Right. Is, it's not only that you have to bring it up, by bringing it up by non-specialized instruments, doing a focus test means that you can also dismantle it. It's the equivalent of a temporary facility. And I think that's, that's an advantage also, is that as we get her, you know, as we, as we have less of a need for population level testing, it can be shrunk down. Yeah, right. and, it, and it gives that flexibility. Yeah, because yeah. it's, in some cases you look at it and knowing that, not knowing enough about COVID to know, well, can you get it again? You've got the flexibility to leave it in place, take it down, expand it. But that's really, when you look at it, it's, it really fits whatever application you want, you've got flexibility. And that's what's really beautiful about it. And it's, Matilda, like the rest of us, are all volunteers. So there's not a, um, the people doing this don't have a separate agenda. You just want to get this fixed and get everyone. Okay, for the right reason. So does this test, you meet the FDA guidelines, uh, guidelines and is it approved for COVID-19? It is using, so the FDA, um, it, essentially the, the protocol for approving it, this is fall under the lab developed test protocol. Yeah. And the FDA under the emergency declarations has given um, states a, a lot of leeway about how they define that and pay attention to it. The volunteers beside myself, there's another very important volunteer Monica DeBaca and we're both pathologists and so in designing the protocol we we designed it and worked on it so that we feel very comfortable it would pass all the regulatory involvement um, 
in, re in relation to developing an LDT and assuring its performance and such? So the answer is um, it, 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 follows, it follows the regulatory environment and can be used and we're quite confident of it. But it, it doesn't have a 510K right. approval and we're right. not trying to provide that. Sure. So what I want to do is I want to share this beautiful website you guys put together um, called Rule Out COVID-19. Um, nice work on putting this together. So my next question is, are you guys looking for any funding to get this up and running? I mean, you guys are doing it altruistically at some level, but um, it does cost money. It does take time and energy. So you have this incredible website. as a call to action, uh, ruleout.org. So what would you say? Are you looking for funding or what are you looking for to help really blow this out? Yeah, right now, if we, had, if we had funding, we could accelerate some of the work we're doing with local hospitals. We're talking specifically to four medical centers in Southern California, two out in the Inland Empire and two in Orange County. And the funding really comes down to a case-by-case -case centers that are, are, would like to deploy this because they're the ones that are going to need the funding. So that becomes really the, um, how, do you, you know, how do you allocate the funding? But yeah, there is a funding need that we're trying to address. Okay, super. So obviously I showed the website. Is there anything else we'd want to share with the audience uh, that we, we haven't discussed? No, I, I think the, the thing that really stands out to me is this is not a unique so solution where you've got to pick a vendor and you've got to get unique equipment. You've got to go train separately. Um, this is the broadest based, most, when, when I look at it from a credibility standpoint, it's the most time-tested technique for doing viral testing. It's easy to deploy, and we really need to get the leverage behind it both politically and nationally because there's centers, you know, I didn't mention we are working with some centers in Iowa as well because as people hear about this, as long as someone's got the motivation and they know that they can get a PCR unit, which a lot of them already have, it's very easy to deploy. We just got to get awareness. And with all the noise out there, you know, we're a small group. We're all volunteers. We're not making any splash. You don't see us on in the Times or anywhere else. But every time I hear, you know, Como talking about their problems in New York, it's like this would have been a perfect thing to put in the Central Park. Right. At a fraction be, of the cost. It's exactly what we're talking about. A fraction of the cost. Yeah. yeah. And, and the whole goal is, is if we can get, the, the way to get back to work is people have to have a feeling of safety in their interactions. Yeah. And, and whether the government says that we can move around, until you until you feel more confident about moving around we're gonna we're gonna self-isolate yeah right. so let's let's help all of us as yeah, best a, we can from the pol political standpoint i bring up new york specifically and it's really it's not when i look at i look at all the efforts como's doing i'm i'm real impressed because he's very proactive this is one that if he knew about what we were doing i think it would have been his first choice it's just, we don't have the access to get in front of him. But this is one where it's very, the way I always look at a solution is, when you talk to the experts, can they say there's a better way that's, that doesn't have a separate agenda? And I really have not found a better way to do this than what we're proposing. I think it's really, it's the best solution and it provides a fast solution. It's the only way to really go out and sample on a large scale, like John talks about, we, we do multiple testing. This is the only way you've got to check that volume way up. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I think 
cutting through the, the din and the noise and the sound and the echo chamber, if you're in front of President Trump and the coronavirus task force, you got 30 seconds to make an elevator pitch, what would it be? I it's would good. say, that, yeah, you go first. John. Well, you go first, John. All right. I'll go second. And what I would encourage you guys is keep it high level for the layperson out there. That's not. No, but she's thirty guys. seconds. It's like, look, go we have it. a method with existing equipment to treat over seven million people a day, to test over seven million people a day. That's all I need. Ten seconds. Exclamation point! That was good. Yeah, John Spinoza. How I, about you? The, I, I would say the same thing that that we have the equipment's there and the processes there that to evaluate 70 million people a day in less than 24 hours. That's the other thing, is that the turnaround time is, is uh, pertinent to the, to the uh, real need. And John, so you know what's, you know what's impressive about that 7 million is President Trump's all about numbers, right? When he's up there, he's always talking about we're the greatest, we're the best. 7 million a day would just blow it out. We got 30, what, 350 million people in this country. Seven million we, a day. And that's a conservative number. We, that's we incredible. Did, we did, uh, I think I just saw today that they touted that they did 250,000 tests yesterday nationally. Right. Right. You know, we got to level up, guys. Level up. Yep. And, and like I said, Ben, that seven million is conservative. Right. Good. John and John, I really appreciate Great. your time today and beyond. It was a very uh, a good in-depth conversation uh, needed to get out there. Um, and uh, really, really appreciated your insight and your expertise. Now, we Thank you very much for having us. Absolutely. Until next time. Thanks, Ben. Thank Thanks, guys.